Hello and welcome to our London History Podcast, where we share our love of London, its people, places and history. It's designed for you to learn things about London that most Londoners don't even know. I am your host, Hazel Baker, qualified London tour guide and CEO and founder of londonguidedwalks.co.uk. Each episode is supported by show notes, transcripts, photos and further reading, all to be found on our website. Click on londonguidedwalks.co.uk, podcast, and then select the episode that you fancy. And if you enjoy what we do, then you'll love our guided walks and private tours that we offer throughout the year. All to be found on our website, londonguidedwalks.co.uk. Get that cup of tea, put your feet up and enjoy. Today we're going to be talking about the gorgeous St Pancras Station and Hotel. Joining me in the studio today is City of London tour guide Ian McDermott, who also does a King's Cross walk around the area, covering Euston, King's Cross and St Pancras. And one of the things, the challenges that we have as a tour guide is that we sometimes have so much information, we just have to choose the best bits to share at that moment. But this podcast gives us an opportunity to share with you some of the more finer detail. Hello, Ian. Hello, Hazel. So first things first, for those who don't know where St Pancras Station is, Ian, can you please enlighten us? Yeah, well, it's just to the north of central London and it's built on the Euston Road. And Euston Road is a modern name for what was originally the new road, which was built in the 1750s. And uh, this new road is quite significant for the history of St Pancras because on the new road, now Euston Road, are three of London's great termini in very close proximity. Um, a quarter of a mile to the uh, west of where we're talking about today is Euston Station. And then bang next door to uh, St Pancras on the other side, uh, immediately adjacent to it, is, is King's Cross. And it's no coincidence that these three stations are so close together and in a line. Um, in 1846, there is a Royal Commission on London Termini, and the Commission advises Parliament that no stations, big stations, should be built uh, south of this line. But there's another reason why this marks a kind of border in terms of overground railway development, and that is simply because the area to the north of the uh, Euston Road had always been a slum district. And that means that the land is fairly cheap for the railway companies to buy. And once you go over the other side to the southern side of it, you're getting into an area where wealthy people live and where the land would be extremely uh, expensive. So it's rather odd that you have these three big termini uh, together. And one other aspect when, when we're looking at London's railway stations is that London had an enormous number of termini. I mean, it had, I think, 15 uh, in the 19th century. And uh, this this is a huge number. I think Paris has or had eight. And 
this profusion of termini in a way reflects the free-for-all that marked the construction of the railways in Britain, in that it is is purely private enterprise, that they have to get Acts of Parliament to approve the construction of the railways, but it's purely by private enterprise. And it's often remarked on that the British railway system isn't terribly efficient because there's a sort of lot of duplication of lines and resources, and this duplication can also be seen in the proliferation of the London's termini. Apart from talking about um, where St Pancras is, I I think you'd probably agree with me, Hazel, that it is probably isn't the best known neo-Gothic building in Britain, but it's certainly up there, isn't isn't it, along with the Houses of Parliament and and the Natural History Museum. I I think I've just subconsciously revealed my London bias there because I said in Britain and then I've reeled off three London buildings. But actually, I I think that probably is valid. I think that they are probably the best known neo-gothic buildings do you agree with that yeah you might be right there and i think that is helped by harry potter and a certain flying car and so people might recognize the building but they might actually think that is king's cross station where the children catch the hogwarts express to go to school but of course it is indeed saint pancras oh yes all right Uh, amongst younger people uh, recently yes 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 and there is um i think Certainly the case can be made for saying that St Pancras is the finest Gothic revival building in Britain, so of enormous importance. And um, I think one of the problems that we have as Londoners is that we obviously use St Pancras as a station, primarily as an underground station, but we also use it as a main mainline station. Um, and the problem with that is that when you tend to go there, you, you tend to be on the way to somewhere else and you tend to be in a hurry because you're worrying about getting wherever you're going it's a building that really repays giving it some attention and certainly over the past couple of years I've tried to do that by just wandering around slowly you have to be a bit careful I I, I'm aware that in sort of describing it as finest neo-gothic saying how well known it is how popular it is and we're going to go on describe some of the details of the station which is why uh, it repays attention. Not only is it a fine building, but it's one that's absolutely covered in detail. And it's looking at those details, which is uh, so enjoyable. But you have to be, having given this kind of advertisement for tourism in that part of London, um, you have to be a little bit careful because you might be relieved of some of your possessions. So just put that out there as a, a warning that pickpockets uh, operate still in this area, although it's been uh, cleaned up a lot. I think that you can say that about any city when you are doing a different behaviour than the, the locale, then you do um, draw attention to yourself. Yeah, yeah, the, yes, that is true. Why is St Pancras so important? Well, there are two elements to the building. There's the train shed, which is the station proper, and then there is the facade, and the facade... Um, has always been mainly occupied. They're not exclusively occupied by the uh, hotel. And the train shed is designed by W.H. Barlow, uh, who was the contracting engineer for the company. And that station is a triumph of Victorian engineering, using the latest materials, wrought iron and glass. And when it was built, it was the largest single-span building anywhere. And then the station frontage is designed by George Gilbert Scott, the architect. So this is significant. You've got the engineer doing the train shed bit, and then you've got uh, a leading architect doing the, the, the front of the station. And 
this is a this is what we've been talking about in terms of, in terms of it being a really important near gothic building this is a sort of masterpiece it's a riot of detail uh, it, and it, it, it's a fantastic building so it's the marriage of this triumph of victorian innovation with this splendid near gothic building and the two they're, they're separate in terms of function, separate in the way they've been conceived, but they, they work extremely well together and they, they, they work seamlessly together as well. And they also used two different architects, one for the station itself and another for the hotel. Yeah, well, there are two bits to it. There's, there's the, the, the engine shed, which is designed by Barlow, which is the functioning station part, and then they want to build a front onto it. And that's the bit that's designed by George Gilbert Scott. And that is largely... Uh, built as a hotel though there were important rooms for the station so the ticket office was part of it and also there were offices for the Midland Railway and that has continued down to the modern day because it's all been done up now and it's now the terminus for Eurostar but they reopened the hotel but the the difference today is that uh, a lot of the upper floors on the the front are being converted into flats now as well so that that's one difference but the yeah the, the key contrast is between the the, the, the front of St Pancras and the rear of the station part. And the ticket office is beautiful and it's a nice restaurant now. Yes, yeah, so when they did the hotel, uh, they opened up the ticket office as a restaurant and it's rather a nice place to go in and sit and admire the, the architecture. The restaurant is quite pricey, but uh, there's also Carluccio's down there on the forecourt and in addition, at the eastern end of the station, there is a, a pub called, rather strangely, the Betjeman Arms, a rather odd combination of Betjeman and the word arms. But nevertheless, Betjeman is an extremely important figure in, in, in saving St Pancras. And obviously, you can go and sit in those two. And they extend out at the back into the station proper part. St Pancras was built in the 1860s, making it the third big station to be built on what is now Euston Road. Could you give us a bit of background behind its construction? Yes, yeah, so the, the background to it is obviously the development of railways in Britain. And the story begins with the construction of the Stockton and Darlington Railway in 1825, which is the world's first um, s- s- railway with a steam locomotive on it. However, the world's proper first railway uh, in the modern sense is the Liverpool and Manchester, which is built in 1830. Uh, the Stockton and Darlington relied on horses to draw its passenger traffic and also it was run on a different model to different railways whereby the company the Stockton and Darlington allowed other companies to run traffic on it on its line so the Liverpool and Manchester is is, is really the first modern railway in the sense that it's the first one that has steam locomotives pulling all of the traffic and the company that runs it runs the services runs the track owns and owns the track and owns the locomotives on it and um, one significant thing about these two early companies is that they pay very good dividends fairly regularly. And this is one thing that contributes to the expansion of the network. And there are two big railway booms, firstly in the 1830s and secondly, an even larger one in the 1840s, which is often referred to as railway mania. And as the word mania suggests, both of these booms ended in rather dramatic crashes. But nevertheless, their, their long-term uh, effect was that by the early 1850s, Britain has a reasonably complete 
rail network. I mean, there, there are bits that aren't covered very well. Wales, there's hardly anything. Um, the highlands of Scotland is, is sparse. The southwest of England isn't that great. But it, other, apart from that, it is a fairly complete um, network. And within this system, the two most important lines were the two running in to North London, which is the one that goes into Euston, which is the London and Birmingham Railway. And Euston is the first of the, well, it's the first big terminus built in the world. It's the first of the London termini, uh, opens in 1838. And this is the London and Birmingham Railway. And this is of enormous importance because the time taken to get to Birmingham is cut to five and a quarter hours. By stagecoach, it, it would take you the best part of 24 hours. Um, and then in 1852, King's Cross opens, and King's Cross is the Great Northern Railway, uh, which connects London with York. And it's not just connecting London with York and London and Birmingham. The, these come; the, those are the the sort of main lines of a burgeoning network run by each of these companies. But those two sections of line are by far and away the most important in in this network. And the people who are going to build St Pancras, they're going to be the third station along here. In a way, they're the interlopers in this system. The, the Midland Railway owes its origins uh, to the amalgamation of three companies that get going around Derby in the Midlands, and they're amalgamated in the 1840s. And this is a time before the GNR is built. So the, um, the, the, the London and Birmingham Railway is built, but not yet the GNR. And one of the reasons that the railway network becomes so um, inefficient in the eyes of its critics and duplicates a lot of the structure is that actually it's in the individual interests of a company to build as much track and control as much track as possible because it's like um in a way it's like rather like a board game whereby you're trying to create a monopoly in your own area but also you're trying to get in the way of other railway lines you're trying to force other companies to use your have to use your tracks and if they do that they then have to pay you a toll for so doing and this an original business plan of the midland railway is somewhat spoiled by the construction of the gnr because the gnr provides a direct link between london and york and bypasses their network entirely. And one of the interesting things is that the Midland Railway lobbies very hard uh, in Parliament against the construction of the um, GNR out of King's Cross. And as a result of the Midland Railway's lobbying, the GNR is forced to spend the colossal sum of £1.5 million on getting its bill through Parliament. And this is relevant to the construction of St Pancras because when they actually come to do it, it's a hugely expensive venture. The train shed and the hotel individually cost around £435,000 roughly each. I mean, hugely expensive. But this has to be placed in the context of the enormous amounts of money being thrown around by the other companies. So the GNR, not of its own choice, is forced to spend all this money on getting its bill through Parliament. And then the other one down the road, Euston, it goes mad in a, an architectural sense as well by building two very famous buildings uh, which were later knocked down by British Rail the the Euston Portico or Euston Arch plus they also had this thing called the Great Hall at Euston which is built in the 1840s two enormously expensive bits of architecture so the um, the, the, the expense that lavish, is lavished on St Pancras has to be placed in this context of these hugely expensive railways they are 
enormously expensive. And when the Midland Railway eventually gets to build its line to London, which it does in the 1860s, the short bit of railway between Bedford and London, which it's going to build, is going to come in at an entire cost of £6 million. And inevitably, as always with these projects, when it comes in at £6 million, it's grossly over budget. Um, But there's a, um, a problem for the Midland Railway in that once the GNR is constructed, it's forced to rely on the GNR and the old London and Birmingham Railway, which by this time has become the London and Northwestern Railway. Um, it's forced to rely on these lines to get its traffic into London. And it's those two companies, the LNWR and the GNR, they both charge the Midland Railway tolls for using its network, and those tolls aren't cheap. And in particular, the GNR goes in for prohibitive pricing on coal, which is the Midland's main money spinner, um, and it's forced to run its coal down the, the lines to Euston. And the other problem is that, you can, well, as you can well imagine, the, throughout its history, the British Rail Network has suffered from congestion. If there's congestion, what's going to happen? Well, these two companies, they're going to prioritise their own traffic over that of the Midland Railway. And we should also add that, in addition, the, the, the two termini of Euston and King's Cross can get very congested. And things really come to a head in 1862 when there is the international exhibition. So this is the second great international exhibition after the the, the first, the great exhibition of 10 years earlier. And the railway traffic coming in to see this is enormous and it creates huge, huge problems at King's Cross. And the GNR... um, gives the Midland Railway an ultimatum to stop using some of its sidings and then the Midland Railway drags its feet and there are all kinds of arguments over it. And this is really the final thing that the Midland Railway needs to uh, kick it into build its own extension down. So the it builds the Bedford to St Pancras line. Um, uh, Bedford is part of it, its network, 50 miles of track and the Midland now has its own network running directly into London. And that's why they're on the Euston Road. Uh, Yes, indeed. Um, So they're all very close together. They're all uh, competing very intensively. This uh, explains quite a lot of the architecture. So you've got to imagine there's this animosity between the, the railway companies. And the Midland Railway is really trying to pull one over on the other companies. And by spending a lot of money on its station and on the the, the two parts of the station, the train shed and the, the actual frontage, it is making a statement to customers that they can have a particular experience, perhaps we might say in modern, modern language, in using the Midland Railway. But also it's making a big contrast between St Pancras and King's Cross next door. One of the features of Barlow's design for the engine shed is that, like the other two termini, Euston and King's Cross, he had to deal with the um, problem of crossing the Regent's Canal, which runs roughly in an east-west direction to the north of these termini. And at King's Cross, they had gone for the solution of going underneath And Barlow decides to go over the top. And, well, there probably were very good engineering reasons for this. One of the problems with the King's Cross uh, solution was that it meant that there was a very steep gradient leading out from the canal to go up to street level to meet King's Cross. 
difficult for the locomotives of the time. But also the King's Cross network suffered for many, many years from flooding. So if there was um, a heavy downpour, it was likely that the, the, the tunnels underneath the Regent's Canal could flood and that could shut down the entire network. So Barlow goes over the top, and what he does, what that means is he has to then build the approach into St Pancras on big archways, and this means that St Pancras is built up and is about 20 feet higher than street level. However, it may not be entirely coincidental that when, as a result of this, when you're standing at King's Cross and you look at St Pancras, you're looking up. St Pancras completely overlooks and dominates King's Cross because it is uh, 20 foot higher. The other reason perhaps for the expense lavished on both of them, uh, as I indicated, was that Midland is distinguishing itself in a general sense and perhaps uh, contributing to the passenger experience. And here it may well be significant that the Midlands railways lines were never the fastest. The, the routes out of St Pancras were slightly longer than the other routes. And the track had lots of curves in it, which meant it was difficult to run big fast locomotives on it and the midland later on tried to distinguish itself by creating a particular by, by making it very competitive on customer comfort and one of the things it later does in the 1870s so shortly after the um, station is built is it innovates by um, saying that it will run third class uh, carriages on all of its trains and then later on it actually does away with second class entirely and when it does this it basically upgrades its third class to the standards of the old second class so passengers traveling third class get upholstered seats which which they never had before and also they have proper railway compartments so before this time if you were traveling third class the, the, you'd be sitting on wooden benches which would be back to back um, and so the Midland, and when it does this, the Midland is hugely successful. I mean, it, it, it attracts a lot of traffic this way. And it's a very wise move because by the end of the 19th century, the overwhelming majority of traffic, passenger traffic being carried, is third class. So they, 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 they latch onto this. In modern terms, they're very successful in marketing. And I suspect that the, in the back of their minds, when they're uh, lavishing all this money on the station, that they're, they're trying to create a, a kind of unique passenger experience which will differentiate them from their uh, competitors. Uh, you said it was the largest single span roof. In what other ways was it impressive? Yeah, the, there had been other single span roofs before this. So Charing Cross and Cannon Street, two other termini, had had them, though unfortunately their roofs are uh, no longer there. But in addition to this just simply being the largest single span roof it's also innovative in that the other single span roofs of the time had lots more uh, trusses and spars at the top of the roof to keep the horizontal uh, to control the, the the outward pressure on 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 the outside of the arch and barlow had an innovative uh, design solution to this because he ran um, metal ties underneath the platform floor which did a lot of weight away with a lot of the, the, the need for additional horizontal reinforcements higher up. And this gives it a kind of unique space. It's a very, very clean space. So it's it's single span, but in addition to being single span, it's, it's, it's also um, very, very clean w when you look at it. Part of the innovation is, is running with these new materials and the 
arch at St Pancras is supported by a series of 25 sets of ribs made out of wrought iron. And when you go into the uh, train shed, you can see in huge letters stamped on these big ribs, which are painted uh, light blue, the name Butterley of Derbyshire. So he's, he's the iron founder that, that makes them. And it is these iron ribs that support the weight of this arch. The, the walls running down the side there are, are, are not structural at all. This makes for a very striking space. Um, I think in the context of the 1860s, it would have been extremely modern and innovative. But it also, the fact that you've got this open space makes it very easy to use as a passenger. Uh, it's very easy to sort of see where you are in the station and, and to know your way around. So there were practical advantages to it. Also, before when they, when they had... Uh, roost that was supported by pillars uh, there was always a danger of uh, trains um, crashing into them and uh, this happened that there, there used to be um, a, a terminus just sort of south of um, where london bridge is uh, known as bricklayers arms and they had an accident there when one of the when a locomotive ran into one of the ran into one of the columns causing a, a lot of uh, damage and um when Barlow decides to make the, the, the station high up. He initially thinks of filling the space beneath the platforms just with earth. And, but it, the idea then is put to him that actually this space could be very useful for storage. And they have a very big potential customer for this storage space, and that is the breweries in, in Burton. And the space underneath the platforms is supported by metal columns, and those metal columns are spaced on, the spacing is based on that in Burton in the warehouses. So ultimately, the spacing between the columns is based on the dimensions of a beer barrel. And when they redeveloped St Pancras in the early 2000s, what they do is they open up this basement space and the, the iron columns no longer support the, the weight of the platforms above, and they take a lot of the iron columns out. But when you walk through them, uh, you can walk through this, the, what was the basement space. It is now the main concourse. It's the main way of moving people around the station, and it is used as a retail space, so there are shops down the side. When you walk down there, they've left some of these metal columns in in place so you can see the remains of what was a huge field of iron columns supporting the weight of the platforms above and when you walk through this space on the western side of the station there are these retail outlets and those are placed in the arches were underneath the wall which again at, at this basement level was supporting a lot of the weight, weight weight above so that's quite an impressive thing and what we'll do is we can put some uh, photographs on the website il illustrating that and was the station built at the same time as the hotel? Um, a little bit afterwards. So the, the station is completed in October 1868, and that is the point at which they actually begin the construction of the hotel. And the hotel is completed uh, around 1876. It, it opens for business in 1873, but they, they, they've completed it by 1876. And before this time, um, I think it's around 1865, they, they hold a competition for the design of the hotel. And this is significant because when you have a competition, what you're trying to do is demonstrate to your shareholders that you're getting value for money. And I think the implicit idea behind a competition is that perhaps the cheapest design is the one that will win. Well, they have a competition and 
they don't have a problem because George Gilbert Scott doesn't enter the competition. So one of the directors quietly has a word with him and he's persuaded to put in an entry. And then his entry happens to be the most expensive one that they have to consider. And yet he wins. So clearly they wanted uh, they, they wanted their, their man and eventually they, they got him. And can you describe what it looks like? Yeah, again, we'll we'll, we'll put up some uh, photographs on the the, the website, and um, it it as already said, it's designed to contrast with King's Cross. Uh, so it has um, this curved frontage as you look at it from across the Euston Road, which then straightens out. So the curve is on the left as you look at it from across the road, or on on the western side, and then. When the curve flattens out, there's a huge, huge arch. And that arch was originally for departures. So the idea is that you arrive in your cab, the cab drives in through the arch, and you're on the platforms for the departures. And then on the other side of this big facade is another arch, and that is for the arrivals. So again, the the train pulls in and you get your cab, you immediately step out of the, the train, your cab is there waiting, and it drives you out of that arch. And then the forecourt sweeps up to these two arches. They're rather elegant, the roads, and they they're very make a very efficient use of limited space. Uh, so you've got two roadways sweeping up in this, this narrow courtyard, and it's quite a steep gradient up as well. I was saying that um, St Pancras uh, stands out from King's Cross because it is higher up. It's built 20 feet above uh, street level, so it completely dominates it, it completely overlooks King's Cross. But there are two other features that immediately make it uh, stand out in contrast to the, the great rival, the GNR. And the first is colour. Uh, St Pancras is a very distinct red, whereas uh, King's Cross is made out of yellow London stock bricks. Um, I my, my personal opinion is actually the two buildings, in spite of the animosity between the two companies, they work very well together. I think they make a very pleasing contrast. But anyway, they are indeed a contrast. And the um, red bricks on the front of St Pancras are expensive bricks. They're made by a manufacturer by the name of Gripper in, in, in Nottingham. And then they've got sort of slightly cheaper, slightly duller red bricks down, down the side of the building. But anyway... The, the colour itself is, is a big statement. And the other big, big contrast that leaps out of you is that St Pancras is flamboyantly Gothic. And King's Cross, um, when you look at it, insofar as it's done in a kind of vocab, has an architectural vocabulary, it is that of classicism. But the outstanding feature of King's Cross is that it's highly functional. um, It's basically two train sheds stuck together with a supporting wall down the middle. So this is the way that they they dealt with the problem of having um, a spanned roof over the top of it. It's basically two smaller span roofs stuck together and it's ba- one side is for departures, one side is for arrivals. But also the, the facade of it, when you look at it, it, it is very obviously two train sheds put together because it's very, very plain. Uh, personal note, I think it's a very attractive building. Um, it's got nice brick mouldings on it um, and I think it's um, the, 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 the huge windows on the front uh, are very interesting. But it is a highly functional building. And although the shareholders griped at the time of the cost of it, by the standards of London Turbini, I don't think you could get a better value building than King's Cross. And St Pancras is flamboyantly Gothic. I mean, we said that they spent a lot of money on it. Well, it screams money at you. And this flamboyant Gothic 
theme is important also in distinguishing um, St Pancras from Euston, where the, the, the arch and the Great Hall are both done in a classical style of architecture. Um, and behind the Gothic style of Gilbert Scott's architecture, you, you can identify various architectural styles. And perhaps the one when you're looking at St Pancras in the round from a distance, immediately obvious influence on it is the town halls and the cloth halls of Flanders. It's, it's this huge, huge block of a building with then very, very steep pitched roofs with a sort of forest of pinnacles and chimneys coming up from the top of it. And the impact of those pitched roofs and the pillars and pinnacles is really to emphasise the height of the building. Um, and it, uh, I think I'm probably repeating myself, but the whole thing is just, there's just so much detail uh, to take in. And one interesting note here is that originally the station was actually planned to have an additional floor on it. Um, and the, it was cut back um, in uh, a rather perhaps notional nod towards uh, cost cutting. Um, and again, a sort of personal opinion, I actually think that the actual building looks a lot better. Looking at, looking at the drawings for the, the original plans, the, the proportions look a lot better and the building has, has actually affected. And then within this sort of Gothic detailing, there are various other influences at work. The cathedrals of England and France have quite a big impact on it. Um, when you follow the building round from the left to the right when you're facing it, i.e. you're going from west to east, and you, you your eye comes round to this this first big arch, which is the departure arch. That is contained within this massive block, this massive tower, which looks a bit like the tower you might find on a French chateau. And then when you go over to the other side, the eastern side, and you've got the arch for the arrivals, uh, above that is a clock tower, which is a little bit reminiscent of Big Ben. And then within it, having said that the influence is very much sort of French and English cathedrals, your eye then goes, over, goes up to roof level and you see these chimneys and the chimneys are done in the style of sort of English Tudor chimneys. So it's a right uh, old, old mixture. Um, where the original station, sorry, where the original hotel entrance was, which is on the extreme western side, the extreme left, as you look across the road at the building, there's a, a lodger that comes out, which formed the original hotel in, uh, entrance. And that looks like something that could be out of a, a, an, an Italian medieval piazza. Gilbert Scott used lots of different types of stone on the detailing of the building. So there are lots of little columns, the, the, the stone surrounds of the windows, there are lots of different colours of stones. There are two kinds of different marble used in the building. And then perhaps the thing that is really interesting when you go up to look at it in close detail uh, is all the carving that can be found. So there's, there's lots of carving of heads and foliage on the outside of the building and inside there are lots of birds and animals and flowers. And there are two bits that um, are particularly interesting and attractive I think one is that when you go and stand in the departures entrance and it's, it's very easy to walk in there there are little dragons running down the, the the side of the arches and then if you go and sit in the ticket office uh which is now this restaurant at the far end there are four interesting sculptures of contemporary railway workers so you've got all this kind of medieval detailing and then you've got four contemporary railway workers up high in on the walls of the of the building the ironwork is amazing there are, there are railings all over many of the windows in in the front and then finally when you're when you're standing uh, in the forecourt of king's cross being rather overshadowed by this flamboyantly uh, 
Gothic building of the Midland Railway. If you look up to where the clock tower is, just to your right, there's um, a, a statue of Britannia up there holding her her trident. So uh, it's yeah, it, it, as I was saying earlier, it's one of those buildings that really repays just sort of looking at slowly uh, if if you can. And the hotel was a hallmark of luxury, wasn't it? Yes, Baedeker, I think, described it as one of the, the best hotels in London. Um, I mean, it's big. It had 400 rooms, bedrooms and, 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 and sitting rooms. Uh, it had electric lifts. Um, it has this grand staircase which leads up to the, the first floor if, you, if you're not taking the lift. Um, the, the lodger that I've been describing to, on the top of that was a, was a balcony. I mean, you wouldn't want to sit out there now because of the Euston Road. And in, in, in fact, back then, it looks as though the, the noise of the traffic created problems because they had special wooden um, surface put onto the uh, roadway in front, which was rubber-coated to deafen the noise. But, but nevertheless, you could sit out on this rather large, splendid-looking balcony, and that balcony gave on behind to a very long room, which was the ladies' coffee room. And then later on in the 19th century, that ladies' coffee room was, was converted into a ladies' smoking room. And this is one of the first public ladies' smoking rooms uh, for women to smoke openly in public was very modern and I think a bit controversial as well. These features which made it so luxurious didn't save it from becoming quite quickly old-fashioned, particularly after the First World War. And the main problem was a lack of bathrooms and a lack of central heating. And the hotel, I think, became very run down. And in 1935, um, it is closed um, and converted into offices. And I think in the in the introduction when we were saying why it was um, so important in talking about it, I think it's quite clear that I, amongst millions of other people, really loved this building. Um, but in the 1930s, a lot of these Victorian buildings were seen as as run down. They were hopelessly old fashioned. And what I remember from my childhood of, of St Pancras is of it being incredibly grimy. And obviously my childhood before you say anything we're talking diesel technology rather than steam technology hazel but one can imagine that in the day, days of steam it was probably uh, even worse and there st pancras is featured in, in in various films and including one of my favorites which is the lady killers an ealing comedy of the 1950s i'd recommend people to watch it i mean you, you may not like ealing comedies british comedies of, of the 1950s uh, hopefully you will but St Pancras is really a star of that film and uh, it captures, it, it's great being able to see St Pancras and the immediate surrounding area in the 1950s and looking back now, very, very interesting. But one of the things that that does is it captures the the, the last days of steam and it captures the sort of rundown nature of the, the, the area quite well. Because it was run down, well, partly because of that and partly because uh, some people at least were hostile to Victorian architecture. This leads on to the recent chapter in its history, and we're talking about the 1960s, when British Rail contemplated knocking it down. So in 1966, they announced that its future was under review. Now, fortunately, this caused a great deal of fear amongst the public, and British Rail had formed, because I've mentioned in passing 
the Euston Arch and the Great Hall at Euston, which were both tremendous buildings, uh, built both built by Philip Hardwick's father and son. Uh, so the elder built the arch, the younger the, the hotel. But they were two absolutely splendid buildings. And British Rail just knocked them down in the 60s. Um, they had to give two months notice. But basically, people ha- had these well-loved Victorian buildings, and then suddenly they were gone. And it's British Rail putting up a modern building. The architect is is Moorcraft. Um, shall we say that the merits of Euston Station have always been questionable ever since. There is a publicity leaflet from the time when Euston opens and the leaflet boasts, it says something like, simplicity is the key to Euston. Yeah, simplicity, you've just knocked down two of the finest buildings in London. And also, whenever was simplicity part of Euston Station? Uh, sorry, a lot of people won't listening to this probably won't be familiar with Euston Station, but uh, I don't know about you, I've always found it quite difficult to, to walk around. It's quite an unpleasant place, really. But anyway, um, I think most people would sympathise with me. I've realised that I'm sort of, I've, I've just held back from descending into a rant, which you shouldn't do, obviously, on, on a podcast. Uh, I've reined myself in, but I suspect that a lot of people would join with me in, in that rant and lament the loss of these fantastic buildings at Euston and just wonder at not just how they can conceive about knocking St Pancras down, but just the arrogance of it. But anyway, fortunately, there's this huge outcry um, headed by the Victorian Society, which was chaired by Nicholas Pevsner, who was an architectural critic and uh, yeah, somebody I admire a lot. Well, one of the reasons I like him was that he was German and he wrote tremendously well in English, which I always admire. But the, the other important figure, of course, was John Betjeman. And the, there's a statue of Betjeman looking up at the building. Uh, I mean, he, he absolutely loves St Pancras. The, the final chapter in the story is that the station lives on, but 2003 to 2007, the, the station is remodelled because they decide to make it into a terminus for the Eurostar. Uh, Eurostar had originally stopped in uh, Waterloo, but it, it moved to St Pancras. And because the Eurostar trains are so long, this required a remodelling of St Pancras, the, the adding of an extension on onto the northern side. And they used the opportunity to remodel the station and in particular to improve the access to the underground from St Pancras, which is now quite easy to do. And the, the other big change is the one that I've already hinted at, is that they where the basement used to be storing the, the bit, that is now where you enter as a passenger and the main part of the engine shed is now kind of fenced off with glass partitions to stop people wandering in there and if you're catching the Eurostar you go down into the basement area and then you come up having gone through all the security and stuff you then go up via escalators up to the platform level and there is one rather fortunate byproduct of all of this which means that the, the station itself is actually fairly quiet at station level, at the old uh, railway platform level, which is a good place to stand to admire Barlow's engine shed and some of the detailing on uh, Gilbert Scott's building. It's actually quite pleasant to stand in there because people can't get access to the trains from there. So you've got quite an empty space. It's not busy. And if you do want to look dreamily up at a building, that's a relatively safe space to do it from. And unlike in the concourse, you're not going to be getting in anybody's way. So you're not fe- you're not feeling as though you're, you're being pushed on at all. Brilliant, Ian. Thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure, Hazel. We have photos and, of course, the transcript on our website, londonguidedwalks.co.uk forward slash podcast and select episode 105, St Pancras Station. 
And also to remind you that Ian does do a King's Cross walk, a fascinating walk in the underappreciated areas surrounding Euston, St Pancras and King's Cross. That's all for now. Till next time.